Chapter Six, Part Two, of the Rainbow, by D. H. Lawrence. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. He was in a state of violent irritation against her. Partly he was ashamed of his love for these things. He hid his passion for them. He was ashamed of the ecstasy into which he could throw himself with these symbols, and for a few moments he hated the lamb and the mystic pictures of the Eucharist with a violent ashy hatred. His fire was put out. She had thrown cold water on it. The whole thing was distasteful to him. His mouth was full of ashes. He went out cold with corpse-like anger. He hated her. He walked through the white snow, under a sky of lead. And she wept again, in bitter recurrence of the previous gloom. But her heart was easy, oh, much more easy. She was quite willing to make it up with him when he came home again. He was black and surly, but abated. She had broken a little of something in him. And at length he was glad to forfeit from his soul all his symbols, to have her making love to him. He loved it when she put her head on his knee, and he had not asked her to or wanted her to. He loved her when she put her arms round him and made bold love to him. And he did not make love to her. He felt a strong blood in his limbs again and she loved the intent, far look of his eyes when they rested on her, intent, yet far, not near, not with her, and she wanted to bring them near, she wanted his eyes to come to hers, to know her, and they would not, they remained intent and far and proud, like a hawk's, naive and inhuman as a hawk's, so she loved him and caressed him and roused him like a hawk, till he was keen and instant, but without tenderness, he came to her fierce and hard, like a hawk striking and taking her. He was no mystic any more. She was his aim and object, his prey. And she was carried off, and he was satisfied, or satiated, at least. Then immediately she began to retaliate on him. She too was a hawk. If she imitated the pathetic plover running plaintive to him, that was part of the game. When he, satisfied, moved with a proud, insolent slouch of the body and a half-contemptuous drop of the head, unaware of her, ignoring her very existence, after taking his fill of her and getting his satisfaction of her, her soul roused, its pinions became like steel, and she struck at him. When he sat on his perch, glancing sharply round with solitary pride, pride eminent and fierce, she dashed at him and threw him from his station savagely. She goaded him from his keen dignity of a male. She harassed him from his unperturbed pride, till he was mad with rage. His light brown eyes burned with fury. They saw her now. Like flames of anger they flared at her, and recognised her as the enemy. Very good. She was the enemy. Very good. As he prowled round her she watched him. As he struck at her she struck back. He was angry because she had carelessly pushed away his tools so that they got rusty. "'Don't leave them littering in my way, then,' she said. "'I shall leave them where I like,' he cried. "'Then I shall throw them where I like.' They glowered at each other, he with rage in his hands, she with her soul fierce with victory. They were very well matched. They would fight it out. She turned to her sewing. Immediately the tea-things were cleared away, she fetched out the stuff and his soul rose in rage. He hated beyond measure to hear the shriek of calico as she tore the web sharply, as if with pleasure, 
and the run of the sewing-machine gathered a frenzy in him at last. "'Aren't you going to stop that row?' he shouted. "'Can't you do it in the daytime?' She looked up sharply, hostile from her work. "'No, I can't do it in the daytime. I have other things to do. Besides, I like sewing, and you're not going to stop me doing it.' Whereupon she turned back to her arranging, fixing, stitching. His nerves jumped with anger as the sewing-machine started and stuttered and buzzed. But she was enjoying herself. She was triumphant and happy as the darting needle danced ecstatically down a hem, drawing the stuff along under its vivid stabbing, irresistibly. She made the machine hum. She stopped it imperiously. Her fingers were deft and swift and mistress. If he sat behind her stiff with impotent rage, it only made a trembling vividness come into her energy. On she worked. At last he went to bed in a rage, and lay stiff, away from her, and she turned her back on him, and in the morning they did not speak, except in mere cold civilities. And when he came home at night, his heart relenting and growing hot for love of her, when he was just ready to feel he had been wrong, and when he was expecting her to feel the same, there she sat at the sewing-machine. The whole house was covered with clipped calico, the kettle was not even on the fire. She started up, affecting concern. "'Is it so late?' she cried. But his face had gone stiff with rage. He walked through to the parlour, then he walked back and out of the house again. Her heart sank. Very swiftly she began to make his tea. He went, black-hearted, down the road to Ilkeston. When he was in this state he never thought. A bolt shot across the doors of his mind and shut him in, a prisoner. He went back to Ilkeston and drank a glass of beer. What was he going to do? He did not want to see anybody. He would go to Nottingham, to his own town. He went to the station and took a train. When he got to Nottingham, still he had nowhere to go. However, it was more agreeable to walk familiar streets. He paced them with a mad restlessness, as if he were running amok. Then he turned to a bookshop and found a book on Bamberg Cathedral. Here was a discovery. Here was something for him. He went into a quiet restaurant to look at his treasure. He lit up with thrills of bliss as he turned from picture to picture. He had found something at last in these carvings. His soul had great satisfaction. Had he not come out to seek, and had he not found? He was in a passion of fulfilment. These were the finest carvings, statues, he had ever seen. The book lay in his hands like a doorway. The world around was only an enclosure, a room. But he was going away. He lingered over the lovely statues of women. A marvellous, finely wrought universe crystallised out around him as he looked again at the crowns, the twining hair, the woman faces. He liked all the better the unintelligible text of the German. He preferred things he could not understand with the mind. He loved the undiscovered and the undiscoverable. He pored over the pictures intensely, and these were wooden statues, halts, he believed that meant wood, wooden statues so shapen to his soul. He was a million times gladdened. How undiscovered the world was, how it revealed itself to his soul. What a fine, exciting thing his life was at his hand. Did not Bamberg Cathedral make the world his own? He celebrated his triumphant strength and life and verity and embraced the vast riches he was inheriting. But it was about time to go home. 
he had better catch a train. All the time there was a steady bruise at the bottom of his soul, but so steady as to be forgettable. He caught a train for Ilkeston. It was ten o'clock as he was mounting the hill to Cossethay, carrying his limp book on Bamber Cathedral. He had not yet thought of Anna, not definitely. The dark finger pressing a bruise controlled him thoughtlessly. Anna had started guiltily when he left the house. She had hastened, preparing the tea, hoping he would come back. She had made some toast and got all ready. Then he didn't come. She cried with vexation and disappointment. Why had he gone? Why couldn't he come back now? Why was it such a battle between them? She loved him. She did love him. Why couldn't he be kinder to her, nicer to her? She waited in distress. Then her mood grew harder. He passed out of her thoughts. She had considered indignantly what right he had to interfere with her sewing. She had indignantly refuted his right to interfere with her at all. She was not to be interfered with. Was she not herself, and he the outsider? Yet a quiver of fear went through her. If he should leave her. She sat conjuring fears and sufferings, till she wept with very self-pity. She did not know what she would do if he left her, or if he turned against her. The thought of it chilled her, made her desolate and hard. And against him, the stranger, the outsider, the being who wanted to arrogate authority, she remained steadily fortified. Was she not herself? How could one who was not of her own kind presume with authority? She knew she was immutable, unchangeable. She was not afraid for her own being. She was only afraid of all that was not herself. It pressed round her. It came to her and took part in her, in form of her man, this vast, resounding, alien world which was not herself. And he had so many weapons, he might strike from so many sides. When he came in at the door, his heart was blazed with pity and tenderness. She looked so lost and forlorn and young. She glanced up, afraid. And she was surprised to see him, shining-faced, clear and beautiful in his movements, as if he were clarified, and a startled pang of fear and shame of herself went through her. They waited for each other to speak. "'Do you want to eat anything?' she said. "'I'll get it myself,' he answered, not wanting her to serve him. But she brought out food, and it pleased him she did it for him. He was again a bright lord. "'I went to Nottingham,' he said mildly. "'To your mother?' she asked in a flash of contempt. No, I didn't go home. Who did you go to see? I went to see nobody. Then why did you go to Nottingham? I went because I wanted to go. He was getting angry that she again rebuffed him when he was so clear and shining. And who did you see? I saw nobody. Nobody? No. Who should I see? You saw nobody you knew? No, I didn't, he replied irritably. She believed him, and her mood became cold. I bought a book, he said, handing her the propitiatory volume. She idly looked at the pictures. Beautiful, the pure women with their clear dropping gowns. Her heart became colder. What did they mean to him? He sat and waited for her. She bent over the book. Aren't they nice, he said, his voice roused and glad. Her blood flushed, but she did not lift her head. Yes, she said, in spite of herself, she was compelled by him. He was strange, attractive, exerting some power over her. He came over to her and touched her delicately. Her heart beat with wild passion. 
wild, raging passion. But she resisted as yet. It was always the unknown, always the unknown, and she clung fiercely to her known self. But the rising flood carried her away. They loved each other to transport again, passionately and fully. "'Isn't it more wonderful than ever?' she asked him, radiant, like a newly opened flower, with tears like dew. He held her closer. He was strange and abstracted. "'It is always more wonderful,' she asseverated, in a glad child's voice, remembering her fear, and not quite cleared of it yet. So it went on continually, the recurrence of love and conflict between them. One day it seemed as if everything was shattered, all life spoiled, ruined, desolate and laid waste. The next day it was all marvellous again, just marvellous. One day she thought she would go mad from his very presence, the sound of his drinking was detestable to her. The next day she loved and rejoiced in the way he crossed the floor. He was sun, moon and stars in one. She fretted, however, at last, over the lack of stability. When the perfect hours came back, her heart did not forget that they would pass away again. She was uneasy. The surety, the surety, the inner surety, the confidence in the abidingness of love, that was what she wanted, and that she did not get. She knew also that he had not got it. Nevertheless it was a marvellous world. She was for the most part lost in the marvellousness of it. Even her great woes were marvellous to her. She could be very happy, and she wanted to be happy. She resented it when he made her unhappy. Then she could kill him, cast him out. Many days she waited for the hour when he would be gone to work. Then the flow of her life, which he seemed to dam up, was let loose, and she was free. She was free. She was full of delight. Everything delighted her. She took up the rug and went to shake it in the garden. Patches of snow were on the fields. The air was light. She heard the ducks shouting on the pond. She saw them charge and sail across the water, as if they were setting off on an invasion of the world. She watched the rough horses, one of which was clipped smooth on the belly, so that he wore a jacket and long stockings of brown fur, stand kissing each other in the wintry morning by the churchyard wall. Everything delighted her, now he was gone. The insulator, the obstruction removed, the world was all hers in connection with her. She was joyfully active. Nothing pleased her more than to hang out the washing in a high wind that came full butt over the round of the hill, tearing the wet garments out of her hands, making flap, flap, flap of the waving stuff. She laughed and struggled and grew angry, but she loved her solitary days. Then he came home at night, and she knitted her brows because of some endless contest between them. As he stood in the doorway her heart changed. It steeled itself. The laughter and zest of the day disappeared from her. She was stiffened. They fought an unknown battle, unconsciously. Still they were in love with each other. The passion was there. But the passion was consumed in a battle. And the deep, fierce, unnamed battle went on. Everything glowed intensely about them. The world had put off its clothes and was awful, with new, primal nakedness. Sunday came when the strange spell was cast over her by him. Half she loved it. She was becoming more like him. All the weekdays there was a glint of sky and fields. The little church seemed to babble away to the cottages the morning through. 
but on Sundays, when he stayed at home, a deeply coloured, intense gloom seemed to gather on the face of the earth, the church seemed to fill itself with shadow, to become big, a universe to her. There was a burning of blue and ruby, a sound of worship about her. And when the doors were opened, and she came out into the world, it was a world new, created. She stepped into the resurrection of the world, her heart beating to the memory of the darkness and the passion. If, as very often, they went to the marsh for tea on Sundays, then she regained another, lighter world, that had never known the gloom, and the stained glass and the ecstasy of chanting. Her husband was obliterated, she was with her father again, who was so fresh and free and all daylight. Her husband, with his intensity and his darkness, was obliterated. She left him, she forgot him, she accepted her father. Yet, as she went home again with the young man, she put her hand on his arm tentatively, a little bit ashamed. Her hand pleaded that he would not hold it against her, her recusancy. But he was obscured. He seemed to become blind, as if he were not there with her. Then she was afraid. She wanted him. When he was oblivious of her, she almost went mad with fear. For she had become so vulnerable, so exposed. She was in touch so intimately. All things about her had become intimate. She had known them near and lovely, like presences hovering upon her. What if they should all go hard and separate again, standing back from her, terrible and distinct, and she, having known them, should be at their mercy? This frightened her. Always her husband was to her the unknown to which she was delivered up. She was a flower that has been tempted forth into blossom and has no retreat. He had her nakedness in his power. And who was he? What was he? A blind thing, a dark force, without knowledge. She wanted to preserve herself. Then she gathered him to herself again and was satisfied for a moment. But as time went on, she began to realise more and more that he did not alter, that he was something dark, alien to herself. She had thought him just the bright reflex of herself, as the weeks and months went by, she realised that he was a dark opposite to her, that they were opposites, not complements. He did not alter. He remained separately himself, and he seemed to expect her to be part of himself, the extension of his will. She felt him trying to gain power over her, without knowing her. What did he want? Was he going to bully her? What did she want herself? She answered herself that she wanted to be happy, to be natural, like the sunlight and the busy daytime. And at the bottom of her soul she felt he wanted her to be dark, unnatural. Sometimes when he seemed like the darkness covering and smothering her, she revolted almost in horror, and struck at him. She struck at him and made him bleed, and he became wicked. Because she dreaded him and held him in horror, he became wicked. He wanted to destroy, and then the fight between them was cruel. She began to tremble. He wanted to impose himself on her, and he began to shudder. She wanted to desert him, to leave him a prey to the open, with the unclean dogs of the darkness setting on to devour him. He must beat her and make her stay with him, whereas she fought to keep herself free of him. They went their ways now shadowed and stained with blood, feeling the world far off, unable to give help. Till she began to get tired, after a certain point she became impassive, detached utterly from him. 
he was always ready to burst out murderously against her. Her soul got up and left him, she went her way. Nevertheless, in her apparent blitheness, that made his soul black with opposition, she trembled as if she bled. And ever and again the pure love came in sunbeams between them, when she was like a flower in the sun to him, so beautiful, so shining, so intensely dear that he could scarcely bear it. Then, as if his soul had six wings of bliss, he stood absorbed in praise, feeling the radiance from the Almighty beat through him like a pulse, as he stood in the upright flame of praise, transmitting the pulse of creation. And ever and again he appeared to her as the dread flame of power. Sometimes, when he stood in the doorway, his face lit up, he seemed like an annunciation to her, her heart beat fast, and she watched him, suspended. He had a dark, burning being that she dreaded and resisted. She was subject to him as to the angel of the presence. She waited upon him and heard his will, and she trembled in his service. Then all this passed away. Then he loved her for her childishness and for her strangeness to him, for the wonder of her soul which was different from his soul, and which made him genuine when he would be false. And she loved him for the way he sat loosely in a chair, or for the way he came through a door with his face open and eager. She loved his ringing, eager voice, and the touch of the unknown about him, his absolute simplicity. Yet neither of them was quite satisfied. He felt somewhere that she did not respect him. She only respected him as far as he was related to herself. For what he was, beyond her, she had no care. She did not care for what he represented in himself. It is true he did not know himself what he represented, but whatever it was, she did not really honour it. She did no service to his work as a lace designer, nor to himself as a breadwinner, because he went down to the office and worked every day. That entitled him to no respect or regard from her, he knew. Rather she despised him for it, and he almost loved her for this, though at first it maddened him like an insult. What was much deeper? she soon came to combat his deepest feelings. What he thought about life and about society and mankind did not matter very much to her. He was right enough to be insignificant. This was again galling to him. She would judge beyond him on these things. But at length he came to accept her judgments, discovering them as if they were his own. It was not here the deep trouble lay. The deep root of his enmity lay in the fact that she jeered at his soul. He was inarticulate and stupid in thought, but to some things he clung passionately. He loved the church. If she tried to get out of him what he believed, then they were both soon in a white rage. Did he believe the water turned to wine at Canar? She would drive him to the thing as a historical fact. So much rain-water, look at it, can it become grape-juice, wine? For an instant he saw with the clear eyes of the mind and said no, his clear mind, answering her for a moment, rejected the idea. And immediately his whole soul was crying in a mad, inchoate hatred against this violation of himself. It was true for him. His mind was extinguished again at once. His blood was up. In his blood and bones he wanted the scene, the wedding, the water brought forward from the firkins as red wine, and Christ saying to his mother, Woman, what have I to do with thee? mine hour is not yet come. And then, his mother saith unto the servants, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Brangwen loved it, with his bones and blood he loved it, he could not let it go. 
yet she forced him to let it go. She hated his blind attachments. Water, natural water, could it suddenly and unnaturally turn into wine, depart from its being and at haphazard take on another being? Ah, no, he knew it was wrong. She became again the palpitating, hostile child, hateful, putting things to destruction. He became mute and dead. His own being gave him the lie. He knew it was so. Wine was wine, water was water, for ever. The water had not become wine. The miracle was not a real fact. She seemed to be destroying him. He went out, dark and destroyed, his soul running its blood. And he tasted of death, because his life was formed in these unquestioned concepts. She, desolate again as she had been when she was a child, went away and sobbed. She did not care. She did not care whether the water had turned to wine or not. Let him believe it if he wanted to. But she knew she had won, and an ashy desolation came over her. They were ashenly miserable for some time. Then the life began to come back. He was nothing if not dogged. He thought again of the chapter of St. John. There was a great biting pang. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. The best wine. The young man's heart responded in a craving, in a triumph although the knowledge that it was not true in fact bittered him like a weasel in his heart. Which was stronger, the pain of the denial, or the desire for affirmation? He was stubborn in spirit, and abode by his desire, but he would not any more affirm the miracles as true. Very well, it was not true, the water had not turned into wine, the water had not turned into wine, but for all that he would live in his soul as if the water had turned into wine, for truth of fact it had not, but for his soul it had. Whether it turned into wine or whether it didn't, he said, it doesn't bother me. I take it for what it is. And what is it? she asked, quick, hopefully. It's the Bible, he said. That answer enraged her, and she despised him. She did not actively question the Bible herself, but he drove her to contempt. And yet he did not care about the Bible, the written letter, although he could not satisfy her. Yet she knew of herself that he had something real. He was not a dogmatist. He did not believe in fact that the water turned into wine. He did not want to make a fact out of it. Indeed, his attitude was without criticism. It was purely individual. He took that which was of value to him from the written word. He added to his spirit. His mind he let sleep. And she was bitter against him, that he let his mind sleep. That which was human belonged to mankind. He would not exert. He cared only for himself. He was no Christian. Above all, Christ had asserted the brotherhood of man. She, almost against herself, clung to the worship of the human knowledge. Man must die in the body, but in his knowledge he was immortal. Such somewhere was her belief, quite obscure and unformulated. She believed in the omnipotence of the human mind. He, on the other hand, blind as a subterranean thing, just ignored the human mind, and ran after his own dark-souled desires, following his own tunnelling nose. She felt often she must suffocate, and she fought him off. Then he, knowing he was blind, fought madly back again, frantic in sensual fear. He did foolish things. He asserted himself on his rights. He arrogated the old position of master of the house. "'You've a right to do as I want,' he cried. "'Fool!' she answered. "'Fool!' "'I'll let you know who's master,' he cried. 
Fool, she answered. Fool! I've known my own father, who could put a dozen of you in his pipe and push them down with his finger-end. Don't I know what a fool you are? He knew himself what a fool he was, and was flayed by the knowledge. Yet he went on trying to steer the ship of their dual life. He asserted his position as the captain of the ship, and captain and ship bored her. He wanted to loom important as master of one of the innumerable domestic craft that make up the great fleet of society. It seemed to her a ridiculous armada of tubs, jostling in futility. She felt no belief in it. She jeered at him as master of the house, master of their dual life. And he was black with shame and rage. He knew, with shame, how her father had been a man without arrogating any authority. He had gone on the wrong track, and he felt it hard to give up the expedition. There was a great surging and shame. Then he yielded. He had given up the master-of-the-house idea. There was something he wanted, nevertheless, some form of mastery. Ever and anon, after his collapses into the petty and the shameful, he rose up again, and, stubborn in spirit, strong in his power to start afresh, set out once more, in his male pride of being, to fulfil the hidden passion of his spirit. It began well, but it ended always in war between them, till they were both driven almost to madness. He said she did not respect him. She laughed in hollow scorn of this. For her it was enough that she loved him. "'Respect what?' she asked. But he always answered the wrong thing, and though she cudgelled her brains, she could not come at it. "'Why don't you go on with your wood-carving?' she said. "'Why don't you finish your Adam and Eve?' But she did not care for the Adam and Eve, and he never put another stroke to it. She jeered at the Eve, saying, "'She's like a little marionette. Why is she so small? You've made Adam as big as God, and Eve like a doll.' "'It is impudence to say that woman was made out of man's body,' she continued, "'when every man is born of woman. What impudence men have! What arrogance!' In a rage one day, after trying to work on the board and failing, so that his belly was a flame of nausea, he chopped up the whole panel and put it on the fire. She did not know. He went about for some days very quiet and subdued after it. "'Where is the Adam and Eve board?' she asked him. "'Burnt.' She looked at him. "'But you're carving?' "'I burned it.' "'When?' She did not believe him. "'On Friday night.' "'When I was at the marsh?' "'Yes.' She said no more. Then, when he had gone to work, she wept for a whole day, and was much chastened in spirit, so that a new, fragile flame of love came out of the ashes of this last pain. Directly it occurred to her that she was with child. There was a great trembling of wonder and anticipation through her soul. She wanted a child. Not that she loved babies so much, though she was touched by all young things, but she wanted to bear children and a certain hunger in her heart wanted to unite her husband with herself in a child. She wanted a son. She felt a son would be everything. She wanted to tell her husband, but it was such a trembling, intimate thing to tell him, and he was at this time hard and unresponsive, so that she went away and wept. It was such a waste of a beautiful opportunity, such a frost that nipped in the bud one of the beautiful moments of her life. She went about heavy and tremulous with her secret wanting to touch him, oh, most delicately, and see his face, dark and sensitive, attend to her news. She waited and waited for him to become gentle and still towards her, but he was always harsh, and he bullied her, so that the buds shrivelled from her confidence, 
She was chilled. She went down to the marsh. Well, said her father, looking at her, and seeing her at the first glance, what's amiss with you now? The tears came at the touch of his careful love. Nothing, she said. Can't you hit it off, you two? he said. He's so obstinate, she quivered, but her soul was obdurate itself. Ay, and I know another who's all that, said her father. She was silent. You don't want to make yourselves miserable, said her father, all about nought. He isn't miserable, she said. I'll back my life, if you can do nought else, you can make him as miserable as a dog. You'd be a dab-hand at that, my lass. I do nothing to make him miserable, she retorted. Oh, no, oh, no, a packet of butterscotch you are. She laughed a little. You mustn't think I want him to be miserable, she cried. I don't. We quite readily believe it, retorted Brangwen. Neither do you intend him to be hopping for joy, like a fish in a pond. This made her think. She was rather surprised to find that she did not intend her husband to be hopping for joy like a fish in a pond. Her mother came, and they all sat down to tea, talking casually. "'Remember, child,' said her mother, "'that everything is not waiting for your hand just to take or leave. You mustn't expect it. Between two people the love itself is the important thing, and that is neither you nor him. It is a third thing you must create. You mustn't expect it to be just your way.' "'Ha! Nor do I. If I did, I should soon find my mistake out. If I put my hand out to take anything, my hand is very soon bitten, I can tell you.' "'Then you must mind where you put your hand,' said her father. Anna was rather indignant that they took the tragedy of her young married life with such equanimity. "'You love the man right enough,' said her father, wrinkling his forehead in distress. "'That's all as counts.' "'I do love him, more shame to him,' she cried. "'I want to tell him. I've been waiting for four days now to tell him.' Her face began to quiver. The tears came. Her parents watched her in silence. She did not go on. "'Tell him what?' said her father. "'That we're going to have an infant,' she sobbed. "'And he's never, never let me, not once. "'Every time I've come to him, he's been horrid to me. "'And I wanted to tell him, I did. "'And he won't let me. He's cruel to me.' She sobbed as if her heart would break. Her mother went and comforted her, put her arms round her, and held her close. Her father sat with a queer, wrinkled brow, and was rather paler than usual. His heart went tense with hatred of his son-in-law. So that when the tale was sobbed out, and comfort administered, and tea sipped, and something like calm restored to the little circle, the thought of Will Brangwen's entry was not pleasantly entertained. Tilly was set to watch out for him as he passed by on his way home. The little party at table heard the woman's servant's shrill call. "'You've got to come in, Will. Anna's here.' After a few moments the youth entered. "'Are you stopping?' he asked, in his hard, harsh voice. He seemed like a blade of destruction standing there. She quivered to tears. "'Sit you down,' said Tom Brangwen, "'and take a bit off your length.' Will Brangwen sat down. He felt something strange in the atmosphere. He was dark-browed, but his eyes had the keen, intent, sharp look, as if he could only see in the distance, which was a beauty in him, and which made Anna so angry. "'Why does he always deny me?' she said to herself. "'Why is it nothing to him what I am?' And Tom Brangwen, blue-eyed and warm, sat in opposition to the youth. "'How long are you stopping?' the young husband asked his wife. "'Not very long,' she said. "'Get your tea, lad,' said Tom Brangwen. "'Are you itching to be off the moment you enter?' They talked of trivial things. 
Through the open door the level rays of sunset poured in, shining on the floor. A grey hen appeared, stepping swiftly in the doorway, pecking, and the light through her comb and her wattles made an oriflamme tossed here and there as she went. Her grey body was like a ghost. Anna, watching, threw scraps of bread, and she felt the child flame within her. She seemed to remember again forgotten, burning, far-off things. "'Where was I born, mother?' she asked. "'In London.' "'And was my father?' She spoke of him as if he were merely a strange name. She could never connect herself with him. "'Was he dark?' "'He had dark brown hair and dark eyes and a fresh colouring. "'He went bald, rather bald, when he was quite young,' replied her mother, also as if telling a tale which was just old imagination. "'Was he good-looking?' "'Yes, he was very good-looking. Rather small. I have never seen an Englishman who looked like him. Why? He was—' The mother made a quick, running movement with her hands. His figure was alive and changing. It was never fixed. He was not in the least steady, like a running stream. It flashed over the youth. Anna, too, was like a running stream. Instantly he was in love with her again. Tom Brangwen was frightened. His heart always filled with fear, fear of the unknown, when he heard his women speak of their bygone men, as of strangers they had known in passing, and had taken leave of again. In the room there came a silence and a singleness over all their hearts. They were separate people with separate destinies. Why should they seek each to lay violent hands of claim on the other? The young people went home as a sharp little moon was setting in the dusk of spring. Tufts of trees hovered in the upper air. The little church pricked up shadowily at the top of the hill. The earth was a dark blue shadow. She put her hand lightly on his arm, out of her far distance. And out of the distance he felt her touch him. They walked on, hand in hand, along opposite horizons, touching the dusk. There was a sound of thrushes calling in the dark blue twilight. "'I think we're going to have an infant, Bill,' she said from far off. He trembled, and his fingers tightened on hers. "'Why?' he asked, his heart beating. "'You don't know?' "'I do,' she said. They continued without saying any more. Walking along opposite horizons, hand in hand across the intervening space, two separate people, and he trembled as if a wind blew onto him in strong gusts, out of the unseen. He was afraid. He was afraid to know he was alone for she seemed fulfilled and separate and sufficient in her half of the world. He could not bear to know that he was cut off. Why could he not be always one with her? It was he who had given her the child. Why could she not be with him, one with him? Why must he be set in this separateness? Why could she not be with him, close, close, as one with him? She must be one with him. He held her fingers tightly in his own. She did not know what he was thinking. The blaze of light on her heart was too beautiful and dazzling from the conception in her womb. She walked glorified, and the sound of the thrushes, of the trains in the valley, of the far-off faint noises of the town, were her magnifica. But he was struggling in silence. It seemed as though there were before him a solid wall of darkness that impeded him and suffocated him and made him mad. He wanted her to come to him, to complete him, to stand before him so that his eyes did not, should not meet the naked darkness. Nothing mattered to him but that she should come and complete him. 
for he was ridden by the awful sense of his own limitation. It was as if he ended uncompleted, as yet uncreated on the darkness, and he wanted her to come and liberate him into the whole. But she was complete in herself, and he was ashamed of his need, his helpless need of her. His need and his shame of need weighed on him like a madness. Yet still he was quiet and gentle, in reverence of her conception, and because she was with child by him. And she was happy in showers of sunshine. She loved her husband, as a presence, as a grateful condition. But for the moment her need was fulfilled, and now she wanted only to hold her husband by the hand in sheer happiness, without taking thought, only being glad. He had various folios of reproductions, and among them a cheap print from Fra Angelico's Entry of the Blessed into Paradise. This filled Anna with bliss, the beautiful, innocent way in which the blessed held each other by the hand as they moved towards the radiance, the real, real angelic melody made her weep with happiness. The floweriness, the beams of light, the linking of hands, was almost too much for her, too innocent. End of chapter 6, part 2 Read by Tony Foster